1: Human Experience is live once again. We've got a phenomenal show set up for you guys. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this one. My guest for today is Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. He is a biologist and author of more than 85 scientific papers and nine books. Many of his books have gone bestseller worldwide. He was ranked among the top 100 global thought leaders in the world for 2013. He studied Natural Sciences at Cambridge University, Philosophy and History of Science at Harvard University, and then returned to Cambridge to achieve his PhD in biochemistry. His most recent book is Science and Spiritual Practices, Transformative Experiences and Their Effects on Our Bodies, Brains, and Health, which delves into a variety of spiritual practices, the scientific research that has studied them, and the possible benefits that they may bring to our modern lives. Dr. Sheldrick, it's a pleasure. Welcome to HXP
0: good to be with you. Dr. Sh-
1: Doctor Sheldrake, I've been trying to get you on the show for how long? It's been... How many emails have I sent you? I think it's been five years. I've been sending you emails probably once a month.
0: I can't remember, actually. Anyway, <laughs> I, here I am.
1: Yes, we've got you here. I'm very excited. I've got the book in my hand. I I really want to bring sort of people into the framework of what you talk about. So I'd like to... I like to talk about morphic resonance. That seems to be the, a body of, of work that people recognize the most in association with your name. So you were in India when you were coming up with morphic resonance, right?
0: No, I wasn't actually. I came up with the idea in Cambridge. I was working in Cambridge um, on the development of plants, plant form. How do leaves and flowers and, and roots take up their shape? Um, and I worked on plant hormones and chemical controls of plant form. Um, but I got interested in the idea of morphogenetic fields, form-shaping fields, which is a well-established idea in developmental biology. And I came up with the idea of morphic resonance, a kind of memory in nature uh, in Cambridge. Um, I went on developing the idea in India. It was, there was eight years between thinking of it and publishing my first book on it, A New Science of Life. Um, uh, so some of the maturation of the idea occurred in India But basically it grew out of scientific problems in Cambridge um, Out of Western science and Western philosophy Rather than Eastern science and Eastern philosophy
1: hmm. Okay, and so tell us, tell us about the theory This idea that things are connected
0: Well, it's really the idea there's a kind of memory in nature You see the standard idea That we've all grown up with and take for granted is that nature is governed by the laws of nature eternal laws that were all there at the moment of the big bang that never change Um, this I think is a hangover from a kind of platonic philosophy in ancient Greece the idea there's a completely changeless realm we live in fact in a radically evolutionary universe Uh, the big bang about 14 billion years ago took place uh, when the world was very, very small, very hot. The universe has been expanding ever since. And the idea that all the laws of nature were all fixed at the moment of the Big Bang, the standard view, seems to me, well, first of all, it's unprovable, and secondly, it seems improbable. What I'm suggesting instead is that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits, that uh, they evolve as the universe evolves, um, and that there's a kind of memory in nature. And what that works out as, in each species, each kind of animal or plant, it means that there's a kind of collective memory. Each individual draws on it and contributes to it. And this is a testable hypothesis. Uh, If you train rats to learn a new trick in New York, then rats all around the world should be able to learn it quicker just because those rats have learned it in New York. Uh, Similar kinds of rats, a similar trick, the same trick They should get it quicker Mm. because it's now part of the collective memory of rats. And the transfer of information um, based on similarity across space and time is the process I call morphic resonance. It's a resonance uh, on the basis of similarity. And the word morphic means form or shape. It's on the basis of similar patterns of organization or activity. So that's basically the hypothesis. There's a kind of memory in nature instead of nature being amnesic and governed by eternal laws.
1: So so this memory it, that we can, can connect to it and all things are connected to it, animals, plants, nature, and other humans as well?
0: Oh, yes. What I'm saying is that, you know, when you inherit, say, a, a hedgehog grows up or a, or a squirrel, uh, as it's an embryo, it's inheriting the form of its species, bimorphic resonance from previous hedgehogs or squirrels. Mm. Um, it's. It's uh, the usual view is it's all coded in the genes, um, but actually I don't think genes do most of the things that many people assume they do. What they do do is code for the sequence of amino acids and proteins. It's a rather restricted role, um, and I think the shape of animals and plants and the instincts of animals are inherited primarily by morphic resonance through a kind of collective memory of form and behavior within each species. Um, The genes play a part. They play a part in enabling the organism to make the right proteins. But from this point of view, genes have been grossly overrated, and um, a lot of inheritance depends on collective memory.
1: (coughs) Hmm. Okay, so, I mean, you say say in your work that... The the paranormal is more normal than we think. I mean, more people are experiencing telepathy than we kind of acknowledge. Why? I mean, do you agree that this this paraphrase?
0: Oh yes. I mean, well, I don't think of the paranormal as paranormal. I think of it as normal. Um, and telepathy, for example, um, occurs most commonly in the modern world among humans in connection with telephone calls. People think of someone who then rings. And they say, oh, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. Or they know who's calling before they look at the caller ID or pick up the phone. And the usual explanation for that, it's a very common experience. More than 80% of the population have had it, according to surveys in Britain, Europe, um, Germany, um, the United States, Argentina, and other countries. Very common. Uh, The usual explanation. explanation is to say well that's just because people think about other people all the time and if one of them rings they falsely imagine it's telepathy and they just forget all the times they're wrong Mm -hmm. that's the standard way of explaining it away but the um, people who say that haven't got any evidence there's been no scientific tests Um, and when I discovered that this so-called skeptical argument was untested I devised a test so it could be tested um, in my tests on telephone telepathy, um, somebody gives me or my assistant the names of four people they might be telepathic with, usually people they know well, mm. um, and their phone numbers. They sit at home with a mobile phone, uh, with a uh, landline phone being filmed, no caller ID display, and we pick one of the four callers at random and ask them to call. Um, they call, the phone rings. They can't know who it is by knowing that the people's patterns of activity because we've picked the caller at random. Mm -hmm. Um, And before they answer the phone, they have to say to the camera who's calling. I think it's John, they may say, and they pick it up. Hi, John. They're right or they're wrong. And if it was just guessing, they'd be right 25% of the time. In fact, in these experiments, In hundreds of trials, they're right about 45% of the time. It's a very significant effect statistically. Um, And these tests uh, have now been widely replicated. And um, I think the evidence for telepathy is very good. It happens to most people. It's very common. It happens all around the world. Um, I think what's paranormal, really, is the way that some kind of sceptic groups... um, Are so passionately against it and and simply won't believe the evidence of their own senses and their own experience and of scientific tests and persist in believing it's make-believe it's non-existence and so forth that's puzzling until you realize they're motivated to say what they say by a kind of belief system that says telepathy is impossible but if we take the normal as what really happens in the world it's perfectly normal. Most people have had this experience, uh, and it happens quite frequently for some people on a daily basis. Hmm.
1: I mean, do, do you think that people are get, becoming more paranormal, more paranormal thinking? Do you think that telekinesis is on the rise? Do you think that anything is changing in this regard? I mean, because I can, I can pick up the phone and give you a call. For example, whereas maybe before before the invention of telephones, we were communicating tele- telepathically more readily,
0: well, yes, I think it is on the rise actually the um, This phenomenon of telephone telepathy obviously couldn 't exist till telephones appeared um, and now more people have more telephones and use them more often than ever before. So I think it's increasing along with the use of telephones. And a very similar phenomenon um, occurs in connection with SMS messages, text messages, and also in connection with emails. And I and my colleagues have done experiments on these as well and shown that people can telepathically anticipate um, who is sending them an email out of four people or who's sending a text message? It's not just guessing; they can they can pick this up uh, well above the chance level. I mean, if and if, very, if yeah. go, go ahead, sorry,
1: go I was just going to say if if I mean if this is happening more than we think, then why why is your work so challenged in the mainstream? And why is this regarded as pseudoscience?
0: Well, the thing is that. What a lot of people don't realize is how ideological a lot of science is. Um, At the moment, the institutional science is working on a paradigm, a model of reality, which is basically the philosophy of mechanistic materialism. That means the belief that nature is mechanical, machine-like, that matter is unconscious, that human brains are just made up of unconscious matter, that consciousness is just a kind of byproduct of the physical activity of the brain and that minds are therefore all inside heads so the idea that a thought in your mind or mine could influence somebody a hundred miles away from this point of view is completely impossible Mm. it's make-believe it's woo-woo it's pseudoscience it's it's superstition it's credulity you know you name it the The the, the pejorative word, um, it's a taboo. Uh, This shouldn't happen because it doesn't fit with that particular materialist philosophy. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there's an attempt by so-called skeptics, who are not real skeptics, they're really defenders of a kind of worldview, um, uh, advocacy groups, really, um, to say that there's no evidence for this anyone who believes it is a pseudo scientist, or that they're foolish or they're superstitious or they're stupid or they can't think critically or something like that, um, an attempt to demean and dismiss this because it doesn't fit in with their worldview. view. Now, that's exactly what happens in the history of science. When Thomas Kuhn wrote his book about the structure of scientific revolutions, he showed that at any given time in science... There's usually a dominant model or paradigm is the word he used. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything that doesn't fit in with that model is simply dismissed, ignored, ridiculed. um, And that's exactly the kind of behavior we see in defenders of this worldview in relation to phenomena like telepathy. They're branded paranormal, supernatural, uh, woo-woo, and people who do research on them are often uh, attacked. Um, from their point of view, you see, when I do experiments and get positive results for the telepathy, they truly believe these phenomena are impossible. And that means, in their eyes, I must be a fraud, and so must other people who get these results. Either I'm a fool or a fraud, and they therefore feel justified in attacking through editing Wikipedia or through uh, attacks in the media, um, me and other people who do research on this kind of thing, because it just doesn't fit their worldview. And they sincerely believe, most of them, that it's therefore completely impossible. But that is the problem, you see, that they're victims of a dogmatic framework of thinking. And as I show in in my book, Science Set Free, Mm. um, the... The, the, the whole of science has got sort of boxed in with this kind of dogmatism at the moment. And many people outside the scientific worldview are well aware of how dogmatic scientists can be. Many people within that dogmatic framework of belief don't see it that way at all. They think of themselves as 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 being open to evidence, even though they actually dismiss evidence that goes against what they believe in. So it's really a sociological question and it's uh, it's very much to do with the dynamics of scientific paradigms and the sociology of science.
1: Hmm. I mean it's really interesting and you know in in your book Science and Spiritual Practices there's there's a portion in the introduction of your book where you you, call, you sort of call out these atheists and these materialists and I mean they they you even say that they are teaching their own sort of method of spirituality but do you regard this as ironic or uh, sort of hypocritical?
0: Well, there's been a very interesting shift. Most atheists and materialists, not all of them, I mean, but most of the kind of common or garden atheists that you and I are likely to meet uh, is usually a believer in scientific materialism. They believe that Nature is autonomous. The whole universe is like a machine made of unconscious matter governed by eternal laws, mathematical laws, functioning uh, through uh, it purposelessly. Evolution is happening as a result of chance. There's no design, no purpose, no consciousness in nature, Um, and therefore no God. The idea that there's a God out there is... Simply doesn't. There's no place for God in this materialistic world view, so they're atheists, and they think that this is a scientific view. Until recently, um, old school atheists just rejected everything to do with religion and spirituality as rubbish and woo-woo and nonsense and make-believe and superstition and so forth. What's interesting is there's now been a lot of scientific research on spiritual and religious practices. And what this research shows is that these practices are, generally speaking, good for people. They make people happier, healthier, and live longer. So uh, the the converse must also be true. People who don't do these practices are likely to be unhappier, unhealthier, and live shorter. So um, it's precisely because spiritual practices have such benefits that a number of atheists have now taken them up themselves. I mean, Sam Harris, for example, who is an iconic atheist in the United States, you know, one of the so-called new atheists, Mm -hmm. is now giving online meditation courses. And here in Britain, Susan Blackmore, who is a very prominent public atheist, skeptic and materialist, um, uh, has written a book about Zen meditation, which she practices herself. So what's interesting is that the... uh, the 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 ground the debate has shifted. It used to be atheists against everything spiritual and religious. Now um, the new generation of atheists um, are taking up a range of spiritual practices themselves. I mean, principally meditation. Um, and now what they're saying is, oh yes, well, spiritual practices are good for you. Yes, there is some point in them. Yes, there is evidence that they work and can help people make them happier and healthier. And less stressed and and so on. All that's true. Um, But the experience people are getting through these practices is not about connecting with some kind of consciousness out there. It's all just happening inside their brains. It's all a matter of changes in the patterns of nervous activity, uh, release of dopamine or other neurotransmitters, Mm -hmm. and so forth. So it's all inside the head. Now, I suspect that a a lot of atheists who take up meditation and probably millions have done. I mean, this is big. I mean, this is not just a tiny minority. It's quite common. Um, I think that many of them take up meditation starting off with that kind of belief. And I rather suspect that through the experiences they have, uh, they may change their view uh, about reality, um, based on their own experience. Um, I know some people have done, and I did myself. I mean, I myself was an atheist and a materialist, um, as I described in the introduction to my book, Science and Spiritual Practices. Um, And You know, I was educated as a scientist. I did research and taught at Cambridge University and at Harvard. Um, I adopted the standard sort of atheist scientific worldview, My own view of reality was very much opened up, um, first, by um, travelling in India, which gave me a completely new perspective on the world, being in a completely different culture. Secondly, through taking LSD, which, in around 1971, which gave me a, a completely different view of the nature of consciousness and of the mind. And as a result of that, um, I got interested in exploring consciousness without drugs and started doing transcendental meditation. This was around 1971. Um, uh, while I was still an atheist, I, didn't, I liked the fact you didn't have to believe in anything to do this. You just did it, and it was based on experience. Mm-hmm. But my experiences through meditation and yoga, which I also took up, um, led me gradually to move to a very different view of consciousness and and to move beyond this kind of atheist, uh, rather dogmatic atheist worldview that I had. Um, and I think for many people, direct experiences, spiritual experiences through spiritual practices, um, can and, and do lead them into a, a different kind of worldview. After all, Spiritual worldviews and all religions are based on the idea that they're all about consciousness. They're about the idea that there are forms of consciousness beyond the human level with which we can consciously connect. That's what spiritual and religious practices are about. And these practices, um, like meditation, are ways of entering into these different realms of experience and not reading about them, not thinking about them, but actually experiencing them directly. And it's experience that really has the most effect on us. And that, of course, is something we can study scientifically. And in fact, the word experience in Greek is empiros. The word empirical is de- dealing with experience. Science is empirical because it's based on experience. And so are spiritual practices. They're empirical because they're based on um, experience. And in fact, in French, the word experience means both experience and experiment. Um, So that's why I think there's a kind of convergence of science uh, when we look at spiritual practices, a convergence of science and spirituality. And that's one reason I wrote this book, Science and Spiritual Practices,
1: Mm, Yeah. So, I mean, was there a single experience for you that converted you from atheism into believing in something higher?
0: I don't think there was a single experience. I mean, I've had a number of mystical type experiences where I felt myself connected with something higher. And I think probably one of the first of those was in India in 1968. uh, When I was up in the Himalayas, I was staying with a friend, uh, an anthropologist in a remote village, Um, we went for a walk, Uh, we ran into the local holy man who was sitting in his cave near a rapidly flowing river Hmm. in the foothills of the Himalayas, who invited us to sit with him in his cave. So we joined him. He produced something he called a chillum and invited me to smoke out of it. I didn't really know what it was and it turned out to be a very strong form of cannabis which he (laughs) uh, described as Shiva's holy plant uh, because in India it's taken as a a spiritual devotional practice by uh, some of these sadhus, these holy men in orange robes. So I I hadn't taken cannabis before um, and this was... uh, it was very powerful, and it had a huge effect on me. And I, I just felt completely open to this presence of the divine. And I stepped out of the cave into the sunlight, lit, alight, and there were all these snow-capped Himalayan mountains, the sun, the river, uh, the greenery of the vegetation. I, I just felt I was in a totally blessed world. I was in paradise, and I had this feeling of complete connection. And I would say that was one of the first kind of epiphanies, senses of there's something more than just what's happening in my brain. Now, of course, the cannabis had caused changes in the brain. It's, after all, a drug that affects cannabinoid receptors and biochemical mechanisms inside the brain. So, obviously, the brain's involved. Um, But the experience went so much beyond that. Um, And... You know, I tried to persuade myself it's nothing but chemical changes in the brain, but the experience was was so powerful that it made me think, well, why would I just believe that? It seems that I am in contact with a greater form of consciousness. There really is a a greater form of consciousness in the universe. And um, then I thought, well, why not? I mean, that's what most people throughout most of human history have believed on the basis of experiencing it. Uh, not on the basis of dogma. And in fact, I thought it was more dogmatic to deny my own experience than to accept it. Hmm, it's
1: a very interesting story. And I mean, the link to the usage of these compounds, these plant medicines, plant teachers, as you would call them, um, it, there, there seems to be a strong link here between the the entry point of consciousness and these other experiences and these plant compounds i mean we just had just had graham hancock on the show and he was making a link between ayahuasca dmt and the the origins of the spread of these types of ancient civilizations so i mean would you regard regard a link here as well with your work and and what you're doing
0: Well, yes, I've got a new book out that is not out yet in the U.S., but it will be soon, called Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. It's a sequel to Science and Spiritual Practices. And in it, I have a chapter on cannabis and psychedelics. Um, And, uh, I mean, I agree with Graham that uh, it's simply a fact that in in a number of cultures in the world, psychedelics have played a very important part in their uh, religious and ritual uh, lives ayahuasca in the regions in w- wide regions of the amazon in boga in west Africa um, mushrooms in mexico um, psychedelics have played an important part in many cultures i won't, i don 't go so far as to claim all cultures and all religions are based on psychedelics i mean i'm not suggesting that Jesus was taking DMT he might have done, but uh, or mushrooms or anything like that, or that Muhammad was stoned when he ch- channeled the Quran I mean not saying that mm-hmm. um, i uh, I think that there are other the whole point of my books is that um, there are lots of different spiritual practices, I think psychedelics are one of them, but there are other ways of entering altered states of consciousness, including um, uh, Fasting, uh, meditation, um, and a, a number of other spiritual practices. Prayer. Uh, in some cultures, people spend long times in darkness. In Tibetan, um, in, in Tibet, there are some of the Tibetan yogis spend weeks, months uh, in dark caves. Um, and if you're in complete sensory deprivation in the absence of light, you have visionary states, almost psychedelic type visionary states, according to those who've done it. So again, you don't need actual drugs to have visionary states. You can enter them from a variety of other uh, through a variety of other practices. So I'm just saying that um, drugs may have played a part in some cultures, and they certainly play a part in the spiritual explorations of, of quite a lot of people today, but not everybody, and it's certainly not the only way.
1: So, I mean, one of, one of the things that you bring up in this book is meditation and the importance of it. I mean, it seems like we live such stressful lives. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an impact that we sort of go through every day that everything seems so busy that we take this moment out to just sort of quiet the mind, silence the thoughts, or at least slow them down. Why is meditation so important to this connection, to something greater, larger than us?
0: Well, I think there's, there's, there's several answers to that. I mean, I personally do it every day. I find it very helpful. I do it in the mornings, um, usually um, you know, before I start work, um, soon after getting up. Um, well, the, the, the scientific studies on meditation, and there have now been literally thousands of scientific papers on meditation in scientific journals. Uh, they show, first of all, that sitting quietly and meditating, either by using a mantra, which is one way of meditating, or by paying attention to breathing and sensations in the body, so-called mindfulness techniques, another way of meditating, that's without a mantra. Uh, Both these forms of meditation um, have the effect of leading to reduction in blood pressure, lower levels of stress hormones, a feeling of relaxation, activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, which is to do with feeling relaxed and open, as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system, which is not about sympathy, but about fight or flight, you know, fear and responding to emergencies and danger. Um, the parasympathetic nervous system is more about feeling relaxed and, and calming down. And meditation helps in all those ways. Um, it helps calm down the chatter of the mind which in terms of brain scans um, is associated with the activity of the default mode network a series of brain regions that are linked up together that are active when you're ruminating or worrying or thinking or engaging in internal dialogue mm-hmm. and what happens in meditation, I'm sure many people listening to us have meditated and won't need me to tell them but um, what happens is is through having a focus for concentration on the mantra or on the breathing or sensations in the body, um, it sort of pulls the attention away from this chattering, this thought that's going on, the activity of the default mode network, the ruminations, the worries, and the fantasies, and so on. It provides another focus for attention, and it sort of drains energy away from the, Um, the chattering mind Um, and instead of being completely immersed in that that activity of the mind one's more detached from it and and that activity can slow down become less uh, intrusive less encompassing and and there are moments when one can be free of it and those are often moments of great peace calm joy and people often feel connected much to a greater consciousness than their own. Now, I think that's why people developed meditation techniques in the first place within India, within the Buddhist tradition, uh, within the Sufi tradition, within the Christian contemplative tradition in monasteries starting around 450 AD. um, There were people withdrawing to monasteries or hermitages, spending hours a day in spiritual practices, various forms of meditation. Um, And what they were doing was going into the very basis of consciousness itself, the basis of one's own mind, the the consciousness within which thoughts move. The thoughts, as it were, pass through the consciousness that we all have, a bit like clouds going through the sky. The, The thoughts are not the mind, they're in the mind, just like the clouds are not the sky, they're in the sky. Um, And the more one becomes aware of one's connection with the ground of consciousness, like the sky as opposed to the clouds, uh, the more one's part of something much bigger than oneself. And the Hindus, who were the people who were probably some of the first to develop a deep understanding of meditation, the rishis, the Hindu seers, who spent years in caves in the Himalayas and elsewhere in India meditating um, realized that the basis of our own consciousness is none other than the basis of the consciousness of the whole universe. Each of our minds is like a kind of fractal of the divine consciousness that underlies everything. Um, Every consciousness in the universe is a reflection of that. One of their favorite illustrations is thinking of buckets of water um, which at night are reflecting the moon and if you look in all these buckets of water you, you see in each of them the moon it's a reflection of the moon hundreds of different reflections of the moon they all look as if they're separate things but actually they're all reflections of the one moon And their idea is that all of us, all our minds, all our consciousnesses, and the consciousnesses of all other conscious beings in the universe are reflections of the ultimate consciousness, the one consciousness that underlies all things. Um, So the purpose of meditation is to link to that consciousness, and because one of the properties of the ultimate consciousness in all religious traditions is joy, uh, the more one's connected to it, the more joyful one is. Which is why, very often, mystical or spiritual experiences are experienced as intensely joyful.
1: Hmm. Now, I, I want to go back to a little bit to your experiences in India and the Hindu concept of the Brahman. Um, can, can you talk a little bit more about the connection to the mystical and how ancient people were using meditation as a way to connect into the divine and how how the Hindu concept of the Brahman relates to the Holy Trinity in Christianity, please?
0: Yes, well, this is a, a, a very important point. You see, the the... the in many religions, there's the idea that there's a divine consciousness, an ultimate consciousness underlying the universe and everything within it. And the, But it's not just seen as kind of some fuzzy uh, one consciousness. It has a structure. There's a pattern to the nature of the ultimate mind, and it's basically threefold. Um, and the Hindus think of it in all sorts of different trinity models. Um, One of them is, uh, in terms of three different gods, there's Brahma, the creator, um, there's Shiva, the destroyer, and uh, and who uh, creates through destroying. The Brahma is the source of everything. And then Vishnu is the preserver, keeping things going. Um, So Vishnu is more dynamic. Uh, more, more, more preserving, and, and Shiva is more about change and creativity. Um, but the probably the deepest model in the uh, Advaitic tradition in Hindu thought and uh, in most Hindu philosophy is that the ultimate consciousness has this threefold nature, which they call Sat, Chit, Ananda, mm-hmm. and Sat is the ground of being, the ground of consciousness itself, um, conscious being, um, the ability to have ideas, thoughts. It's the ground of all things, uh, the conscious ground of all things. Now, chit is to do with the contents of consciousness, that which can be known, names and forms, what the Hindus call Nama, Rupa, names and forms, um, so that with your mind... I mean, our minds are fractal versions of the ultimate mind. I mean, right now I can look around me and I can see plants, trees out of the window, pens on my desk, um, chairs, uh, books, all sorts of things, pictures on the wall. All of those are names and forms. They're in my consciousness, but the, the consciousness is greater than all the things that are within it. So... Chit is about what can be known. All the many forms in nature, animals, plants, everything that can be known. Words can be known. They have forms and structures. And then the Ananda is means joy. And the third principle of the ultimate mind is on the one hand a principle of movement or change or flow. And on the other hand, it's one of joy. It's a joyful flow. And So the idea is that within the ultimate consciousness, there's a knower, there's that which is known, and there's the connection between them, a kind of love, joy, or flow. Now, there's a very similar um, model of ultimate reality in the Christian conception of God. Um, I mean, a lot of atheists imagine that Christians think God's an old man with a white beard sitting on a cloud. Well, that's... I mean, a few children may think that, um, but that's certainly not the traditional view. The traditional view of God in Christianity is as the Holy Trinity, which is the official doctrine of the nature of God in almost all churches. And the Holy Trinity means God has three aspects, and the Father is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the ground of being or consciousness, and in the Old Testament, um, first revealed when God says to Moses, who encounters him in the burning bush and says, who are you? God says, I am who I am. So that's really a statement of God as conscious being, the ground of being. I am conscious being in the present. Um, the logos, the, the sun or the logos, the, the word, the Greek word for word is in, in this context is logos, is all the things, the forms, the patterns, the names. It's Nama Rupa. It's like the Indians call uh, name and form. (coughs) Uh, And in Greek philosophy, that was, um, in Plato's philosophy, it was the world of ideas, the world of forms, the contents of consciousness, that which can be known. That's the second person of the Trinity. And the third person, the Holy Spirit, is breath or wind or the flow of things, pictured in terms of breathing the flow of the wind, the flow of water, the flow of fire, the uh, flight of birds it's a dynamical principle, and the the the, the, uh, the Christian model of God is primarily based on the metaphor of speech um, so when I'm speaking now, I'm the speaker, but my speech has two aspects on the one hand, there's the words, which is what you're hearing now mm-hmm. um which have forms, shapes, structures, meanings, interconnections, and so forth. Each word has a different form or shape or structure. You can reveal it on a sonograph. You can see the different vibratory patterns of each word. Each has a form. Um, and this, the flow of words and the connection of the words has meaning, and, and at least I hope it does. And um, But th- those are words. But... For them to be heard, for them to be manifested in the world, there has to be the outward flow of my breath. So, as I'm speaking now, I'm breathing out. And the breath, the flow of the breath outwards is an essential part of the speech. So, you can can have the words without the, the breath. I can think the words in my mind. And it's silent when I do that. There's no manifestation of the words. I can breathe out without the words. (sighs) There's a flow of air, which has a kind of white noise to it, but no structure, form, or meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I'm speaking, or when you're speaking, or when anyone's speaking, um, you have both the flow and the structural pattern of the flow. And the Christian model is that the, the ultimate nature of divine reality is like that, that there's a ground of being, a source of both the words and of the flow, Um, And then there's the words and the flow which go together. And these three aspects of the ultimate reality or of our own reality as as beings in the image of God, it doesn't mean God looks like a, 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 a giant man. It means we share in the divine conscious nature. And our consciousness is a kind of fractal version of the divine. And the same would go for, you know, birds and animals and plants that... Each of them has form, uh, the form of a plant, the shapes of the leaves, the petals, the, you know, the, the and so on. Uh, that's a form. Um, but they have a flow of energy through them, through the sunlight that they photosynthesize, through the metabolism that goes on within them. Um, <coughs> and these have a common source. So the, the traditional Christian theological view, which was, thought in all the medieval universities in Europe um, was very similar in those ways to the Hindu view of the threefold nature of the divine. Um, And even completely different thought systems like Taoism in uh, China Mm -hmm. again have a kind of threefold model. You have the polarity of the polar interplay of the yin and the yang, the masculine, the feminine, the light and the dark. Um, But it's not a duality it's not just two things, it's two things within a higher unity, the Tao. In those diagrams of the yin-yang, the Tao is the circle that includes them both, the wholeness within which this polarity exists. So that's a kind of Trinitarian model as well. Um, anyway, I think what happens is that when we look at these, the deeper meaning of these um, theological doctrines, uh, we see models of consciousness. And... When we look at spiritual practices like meditation, we see practices that tap into um, the nature of consciousness, reveal more about our own consciousness and our connection with the divine consciousness uh, through doing the practices.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, would you say, would you say that, that ancient religions, I mean, you talk about... Ritual, and would you say that it's a type of passage, a rite of passage, to incorporate ritual into this sort of practice?
0: Well, yes. I think that the the, um, rituals um, occur in all religions um, and in all secular societies, too. Um, And what rituals do, uh, there's several kinds. There's rites of passage, which are about passing from one state of being to another, and there's rituals of remembrance which are about going back to the original foundation story of a social group and reenacting it. The American Thanksgiving dinner is an example of that. Um, you know it's a national ritual that reenacts the Thanksgiving dinner of the first settlers in New England, the first European settlers in New England. The Jewish Passover is a ritual reenactment of the Passover dinner in Egypt when the Jewish people escaped from slavery in Egypt and started on their journey through the wilderness to the promised land. And the Christian Holy Communion is a reenactment of the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. So these are all reenactment rituals. Uh, There are also rituals which are uh, rites of passage. The reenactment rituals are usually conservative and use ritual languages, ritual forms that are done the same way as before. And I think that's uh, they're done because they're consciously trying to connect with all those who've done them before. And I think those are exactly the conditions that would mean they would, as it were, resonate with those who've done them before, morphic resonance, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. and which I think happens on the basis of similarity. And that's why rituals are done in a similar way every time, um, because that creates this connection across time, a presence of the past. But rites of passage are about entering different states of being, social being, or consciousness. And some rites of initiation, um, particularly those that happen on the threshold of manhood or or womanhood and maturity, rites of passage from adolescence or people becoming um, inducted into a more mature or adult state of being, uh, often have... uh, imagery of dying to your old self and being born again in a new way. Um, American uh, Native American um, vision quests often had that form. People went into the wilderness fasting in conditions of great danger. Um, and you know they could die, some did die. Um, uh, but they went through a kind of trial by ordeal and came back having faced death um, and and being born in a new way. And I think that some uh, rites of passage actually involve near-death experiences. And we know, as I show in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, we know more today about near-death experiences than anyone's ever known before, because they're more common than they've ever been before, and they've been studied scientifically. In the past, someone who had a heart attack or a major medical emergency would usually have just died. Now, um, they're often resuscitated thanks to modern medicine. So far larger numbers of people uh, uh, in the modern world have nearly died than ever in the past. In the past, they actually died for the most part. Um, So... uh, Some people who've nearly died, who've died and come back to life again, um, have had what are called near-death experiences. Very often these involve traveling out of the body, going through a kind of tunnel, coming into the light, uh, feeling a state of great connection, blessedness, love, um, sometimes meeting deceased relatives or beings of light, Christ, angels or other beings of light. Um, And then, because it's a near-death experience, they have to go back into the body. But for many people, these spontaneous near-death experiences uh, change their lives. Um, Even though they only last a few minutes, um, they change people's lives completely, often uh, making them more spiritual. They often say they've lost the fear of death. Um, They often become more caring and considerate to others. Their behavior changes for the better. Um, And I think that some rites of passage uh, actually uh, are based on inducing near-death experiences. And I think the one that's most common in uh, hiding in plain sight in European and American culture is baptism. In the, according to the New Testament, we read that John the Baptist was baptizing people on an almost industrial scale in the River Jordan. They were flocking to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And what he did was held them under, um, it, by total immersion, held them under the water and then brought them up again. And people who'd had that experience were transformed by it. Mm. The first realization Jesus had of his relation with God, which came about through a deep mystical experience induced by baptism by John as he came up from the River Jordan uh, after being held under. Now, what I think is probably going on there is that uh, John was inducing near-death experiences by drowning. If he held people under long enough, uh, they would have a near-death experience through drowning. Uh, The usual view is that this was just symbolic of death by drowning, and um, then coming back to life again. Um, but, you know, why have something just symbolic when you can have the real thing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it only takes a minute or two longer, um, and it's very quick, the whole thing. Um, <laughs> so I, my, uh, how I think of it is that people would have lined up on the bank of the Jordan, John would have stood there in the Jordan, baptized them by holding them under, Um, getting the, you know, he would obviously have to have experience. He could have got it wrong. Uh, Perhaps when he started out, he might have lost a few. But um, he obviously was very experienced, and if he got it just right, what would happen is he could reliably induce near-death experiences in people. And when people came up and then they were resuscitated from this experience, um, many of them would have had the experience of dying, and being born again, which is exactly what people say about baptism by total immersion. Mm, mm-hmm, yeah. And so I think that in the early church, uh, this soon turned into infant baptism, sprinkling water on their head, and it did become just symbolic. But at the Reformation in the 16th century in Europe, the most radical uh, Reformation people reinstated baptism by total immersion. They were called Mm Anabaptists, meaning baptism again. And they gave rise to the Baptists and the Mennonite uh, churches that are now still so strong in the United States. And they were all based on an experience of being immersed, held under, and feeling they'd died and been born again. And it's the Baptists who go around saying they've been born again and uh, in the 16th century this made them very unpopular regular churches uh, were more about having everything properly ordered with priests and so on whereas the baptists were going around filled with this kind of mystical vision and sense of direct personal revelation they'd had through dying and being born again and it makes total sense if what was happening is that they were having near-death experiences. Uh, they really would have been transformed. They really would have felt they'd seen the light, died and been born again. And when we hear these phrases from from Southern Baptists and others today, most people just dismiss them contemptuously, as if these are foolishly deluded people. But I think that behind these phrases are um, uh, deep mystical experiences. And I think that the whole of that movement and the whole of what was going on in the John the Baptist time makes sense if we see these as rites of passage that involve near-death experiences.
1: Yeah, I I never connected the dots with baptism. That makes so much sense now that you put it that way. It it seems like there's an interconnectedness to these mystical states, you know, through religion, through the usage of plants. I mean, it, it seems to be everywhere.
0: Well, I think so. I mean, it's true in all religions, you see. I mean, all religions have had a range of mystical and spiritual practices. I mean, Another one I discuss in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, is singing, and chanting, and that, and and uh, the ritual use of music like dancing. Well, this again, you see, can give tremendously altered states of consciousness. In shamanic cultures, it's always used. I mean, they all have singing, dancing, chanting, and if you look at the sort of raves and. Modern forms of collective ecstasy, which we have in, in, in the modern world, mm-hmm. uh, many people in, in the world today achieve altered states of consciousness through uh, singing, music, dancing. Um, and these are all about opening the mind from beyond our narrow personal concerns to a sense of greater connection with other people and with greater forms of consciousness uh, that exist out there in the universe. Um, so I think that when we see religions as being rooted in that and mostly being about inducing those experiences, it's a very, very different picture from the standard atheist model of religious people being people who've been brainwashed or indoctrinated with with dogmas and uh, which are completely irrational and unscientific. Um, religions are all rooted primarily in experience and they all still have them. I mean, they they all still have singing and chanting and rituals and um, many have fasting. I mean, right now it's Ramadan and um, Muslims are fasting during daylight hours. Many Christians fast during Lent. And some uh, traditional religious and shamanic practices involve altered states of consciousness through psychedelics, as we've just discussed. So there's a whole range of ways um, in which uh spiritual practices, both within and outside religions, because you can also, of course, do these things outside a religious context, as mm-hmm. many people do today. People who are spiritual but not religious, um, uh, are all ways of connecting uh, with this, these greater forms of consciousness.
1: Yeah, A really good question popped up uh, from Christian over at Project Mindfulness. He asks, do does that mean that every introspective journey will lead to the same, the quote unquote same experience of divinity?
0: Well, that's a, I wouldn't say every introspective journey, and I wouldn't say that they all lead to the same experience. Um you see, as we were just discussing, I think that the the consciousness, ultimate consciousness, according to you know, Hinduism, Christianity, the Sufi tradition and Islam and so on. These are, are conscious and in, in Buddhism too, ultimate, the ultimate reality is a conscious reality, it's not unconscious. Um, <coughs> so these different spiritual practices I think can connect us with different aspects. Uh, so meditation I think primarily connects us with the Sat of Sat chitananda you know the the um experience of the ground of consciousness itself but one of the chapters in my book science and spiritual practices is on plants and the beauty of flowers and appreciating the beauty of flowers and how relating to plants can be a kind of spiritual practice Uh, again in all religions flowers are seen as emblems of divine beauty and You know, in Hindu temples and Buddhist temples, people make offerings of flowers. In Christian churches, they always have vases of flowers, or there is like a kind of flower offering that people just take it for granted, but flowers are a key part. And when we're appreciating flowers and the beauty of flowers, or the beauty of buildings or the beauty of art, uh, that can have a spiritual dimension and what we're dealing there with is more with the realm of the spirit which is a, the chit aspect of satchitananda to do with names and forms. It's the beauty of the form. It's not going beyond all form. It's uh, appreciating the nature of forms themselves and the beauty of forms and their relationships that underlies the spiritual aspect of appreciating flowers or, or any other kind of visual beauty. And When we have spiritual experiences that involve music, song, dance, um, again, I have a chapter on that, uh, singing, chanting, and the power of music uh, in my book, Uh, then I think we're connecting more with the aspect of the spirit, which is the moving principle, the dynamical principle of the divine being. So I wouldn't say that all spiritual experiences lead to... The same experience of the divine. Um, it's possible that people meditating in Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, Sufi traditions have similar experiences of the ultimate ground of being. Um, but not all spiritual practices lead to the same kinds of experience, and all religions combine uh, different kinds. Of, of of spiritual practice, they all have their own selection of them, and um, none of them based on just one.
1: Hmm. Okay, I mean we've talked about a number of different things here, Doctor Sheldrake. I know your time is limited. Now, how would you wrap this up for people who are listening? I mean, what were your conclusions when you were writing this book? I mean, realizing. What what you discovered? I mean, this connection between religion, meditation, plant medicine, and all these things, NDEs—they all seem to be connected. So, you know, how can we wrap this up for the people listening?
0: Well, I think that what uh, the, the important thing for me was because I'm both a scientist and, and interested in spiritual practices and practice them myself um, is. First of all, it's very liberating to find that science and these practices are not, like, at war with each other. They're not contradictory. They're not polar opposites. In fact, through the scientific study of spiritual practices, science can help illuminate spiritual practices, and spiritual practices can help illuminate science because they can illuminate the nature of consciousness, which is one of the things that science is least good at understanding at the moment although consciousness studies is now a major part of science, one of the more interesting parts, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Secondly, I think that looking at these practices, um, and especially looking through a scientific lens, enables us to see that... they have a lot in common between different traditions, that all different religious traditions have their spiritual practices, and they're primarily based on experience and on practice. Um, And that these practices from all different traditions in the world enable us to be more tolerant and open to these different traditions, and also more appreciative of them, because after all, There are millions of people, there are about 18 million people in the United States alone who now meditate on a regular basis, and probably at least 10 million who do yoga on a regular basis. Well, these are things that have mainly been learned from Eastern cultures within the last generation or two. I mean, go back 200 years, and most people in the U.S. and in Europe would never have heard of yoga um, and certainly wouldn't have known about mantra-based meditation unless they happened to be Christian mystics living in monasteries, um, uh, so, or Russians, so there was a stronger mystical tradition in Russia among lay people, um, but the, and of course in the Kabbalah tradition among Jewish people. There have always been mystical undercurrents, but what we have now is a situation where practices from all the whole world from all the different cultural and spiritual traditions of the world are now available to us. So this is a new situation, uh, beginning of a new phase of spiritual evolution, I think. And um, so I think these practices can help us all. Um, and they, they, as soon as you think in terms of practice and experience, you go beyond the sterile arguments based on jeering at religious beliefs or sort of attacking scientific dogmatism and stuff. I mean, you can have polemical attacks one way or the other, but this is about it not being about polemics or trying to score points. It's actually trying to uh, deepen our own experience and understanding through experience. And that's the reason that at the end of every one of the seven uh, chapters about practices in, in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, I suggest two simple ways in which anyone can try these practices for themselves. And so it's a book um, that's not just about thinking about it or studying the history or the evolutionary significance or uh, and so on, or the comparative religion, uh, but actually adopting these practices, or if one already has the practices like singing and chanting or meditation, um, understanding them more deeply. Um, and seeing how they fit in with a wider pattern of cultures um, um, so it 's a practical book as well as a theoretical one, and one which I hope will actually help people to explore these practices for themselves
1: yeah, I think so and you know I, I really wanted to bring up the the flow of gratitude and in your chapter that you dedicated to the idea of gratitude and being grateful for things that we have in our lives what's what's happening in as a practice what's what's happening in our our brains when we practice gratitude
0: well i'm not sure there have been that many studies on the the brain effects of gratitude but um have certainly been a lot of studies by positive psychologists on the effects of gratitude um in experiments where people do gratitude exercises um they, they turn out to be measurably happier. For example, in one of the experiments that's now been done widely um, um, by positive psychologists, that means psychologists studying the nature of happiness and how to be happy, rather than most of psychology is about what makes people miserable. Um, this is about what makes people happy. They find that in, in an experiment, a typical experiment, they divide a group of people into three subgroups at random, One of those subgroups is asked to write a short story about something that's happened in the previous week. Another group of people are asked to make a list of the hassles they've experienced in the previous week, Mm. things that have upset them. And the third group is asked to make a list of things uh, in the previous week for which they feel grateful and which they appreciate. And it turns out that the people who just spend 10, 15 minutes making a list of things they're grateful for measurably happier for several days afterwards. Um, um, being grateful makes people happier. Um, and I think it does so because it makes them more part of a flow. Uh, being grateful is acknowledging that a lot of what we have is given to us. I mean, our very life is given to us. And we didn't ask our father and mother to have us. We, They had us, and, uh, and they or other people Cared for us when we were babies and brought us up, and there are other people who make our clothes, and the whole earth provides the fuels that power our cars and planes, and uh, you know, there's people make our computers in factories, and other people look after the electricity supply, and other people make sure we have regular food supplies. People cook our meals. We are looked after by people in our families. There are so many things that our lives depend upon. And when we, uh, instead of taking it for granted, which is the opposite of gratitude, uh, is just taking things for granted or feeling entitled, um, as soon as we recognize that we're part of a flow, we're part of a process, and we're connected to many, many other people, and we're all connected to Gaia, the Earth, and the Earth's connected to the solar system and the galaxy and the universe. We're part of something vastly greater than ourselves. And when we recognize that, when we become consciously aware of it, when we give thanks for that, uh, we become part of a process of flow and connection. And being happy is all about being part, of a connect- being part of the flow and part of a sense of connection with something greater than ourselves. Being miserable is about feeling disconnected, alienated, cut off, separated, um, disenchanted, dis- disgruntled, complaining. Um, and um, gratitude it has uh, people who practice it are happier and not just happier but more popular they, it's nicer to hang out with somebody who's grateful and happy than somebody who feels entitled and spends most of their time complaining um, and that in turn of course may, people who are appreciated and more popular because they're grateful and uh, and they're happier, uh, that makes them happier still. So um, it's a, a virtuous circle, the opposite of a vicious circle. It's uh, by being grateful and appreciative, life gets better. And, of course, all uh, religions encourage that. Um, and Christian services start with thanks and prayers of thanksgiving and hymns of thanksgiving and so on. And, you know, all traditions have ways of giving thanks. And one of the practices, well, I suggest two practices in my chapter. One is to practice gratitude daily or weekly, think about or make a list of things for which you feel grateful. Another is to do something very, very traditional, which is to give thanks before meals. And in all traditional societies, people give thanks before they eat. And 100 years ago, probably every family in America uh, would have given thanks before they ate together. Um, mm. And nowadays a great many don't because they're sort of modern and secular and they've just stopped doing it or they don't even sit down together because they're all sort of grazing at different times from food counters. Um, so, uh, But that sense of giving thanks together, um, all traditional societies do it. In my college in Cambridge, it was founded in 1326, um, before every meal in the evenings, uh, a gong rings, everyone stands up uh, eating in the Great Hall. Um, and there's a long Latin grace. This happens, they happening in, in a few minutes' time. Um, uh, this is every day, and this is a traditional practice. It's the way things always were, and people may not have paid that much attention to it, but it provided a space where you could give thanks before meals. In my own family, um, we always have a pause for giving thanks before we eat. If it's just the family, we usually sit, hold hands around the table and have a period of silence when we um, give thanks in our own way or if it's more people then someone says a grace or when we have a larger gathering like at Christmas or in birthdays or in other groups of friends around, we sing a grace together. We sing it as a... Around and, and doing that, just that simple thing brings everyone together, changes the atmosphere, and makes the meal more enjoyable and, and just uh, we all feel more connected. Such a simple thing, and it costs nothing, and oh. it was always used to be done. And um, you know, doing that, even if one's on one's own, just having a pause to give thanks before meals makes a big difference.
1: Dr. Sheldrake, I know your time is short. I, I think I could sit here and talk to you, listen to you talk all day. I have a lot of gratitude for you for making the time to do this interview. Um, where can, I mean, you've influenced uh, my own learning for many, many years. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, I, I've been emailing you for a long time just to appear on the, sh- on, on the show here. Um, where can people find your book, Science and Spiritual Practices?
0: Well, it's obviously available online on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online bookstores. It's also available as an audiobook read by me in Audible on Amazon and through other audiobook outlets, and as an e-book. And in fact, all my books, um, well, they're not all available in audio format. They're all available in print and, and um, e- e-book formats. mm mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of information about my work, um, lots of YouTubes, lots of podcasts and so on, on my website, which is sheldrake.org. There are also some experiments people can take part in, uh, which will help my research. Um, And if anyone's interested in knowing more, there's a newsletter they can sign up for, um, which talks about my workshops and lectures. I'm giving one in... Um, in July um, 2019 um, in California, Institute of Noetic Sciences Conference, and um, I give a workshop every summer at Hollyhock on Cortes Island in British Columbia, Canada, with my two sons, Merlin and Cosmo, on science and spiritual practices, the very themes we've been talking about today. And that is at the end of July, beginning of August, at Hollyhock. Hmm. And their website is hollyhock.ca in Canada. Um, So anyone who wants to find out more can easily do so.
1: Guys, you heard it here. My guest's name is Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. The book is called Science and Spiritual Practices, Transformative Experiences and Their Effects on Our Bodies, Brains and Health. We are going to get out of here. You will hear from us next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like the show, please subscribe. Click the bell to be notified when we go live. Thank you so much for your presence. We'll see you next week.